Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Okay, we're in Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're in this series, we're more than halfway through the series called Overlooked. And part of the series is us just getting really honest about how we have overlooked the testimony and the witness of many women in the Old Testament. And it's a sad thing because we have much what we can learn from, from their stories. But this is not just a Bible thing. This is not just a church thing. There are sadly many ways we have not elevated the story and the legacy of women in our own community. Have you even thought how unique is it during this series when we're doing this that we are meeting at the Texas Federation of Women's Clubs Mansion? Like this is, even this place we're meeting has its own legacy and story And I don't think many of us are thinking about how our church's story intersects with this organization that owns this building. So would you guys mind if I share a little bit about the women's club that we are gathering in? Is that okay with y'all? Don't be too excited. Okay, here we go. It was started in 1897 as a, a philanthropic organization, and they were very, very passionate about one thing, literacy. They were really, really interested to make sure that the children and youth of Texas could read. And so we might not know this, but I love this right here, that these women began to rally around that cause, and they made a profound impact on our state. Around 70% of public libraries in the state of Texas were helped being started by this organization. 70% of the libraries in our state were uh, founded through the assistance of the Texas Women's Club. Do you know, this is also, I found this pretty amazing, that their motto was adopted in 1913. I find it very vinish, if that's a word, very viney. Uh, that this is their motto that was adopted in 1913. In small things liberty, in large things unity, and in all things charity. It's like a very viney, you know, third way posture, if you ask me. Yet we come in and out of this building, and we might overlook the story that there is in this place, how our church intersects with this organization. I mean, when was the last time you actually walked down this hallway and noticed the gallery of all these strong women that were once the president of this organization? When was the last time you stopped and gazed upon their legacy? You haven't. Not one of you have. Do you know why I know that? 
is because I've been running an experiment for the last three weeks, and all of you, 100% of you, failed it. <laughs> you want to know what the experiment was? It was this. I um, decided to change a picture to see if you would notice the women there, and that woman, that woman became a president of this organization, and for the last three weeks, she has been on that wall, and you have mindlessly walked past her for the last three weeks. I mean, I even sometimes stopped, I stopped people and took their picture in front of the photo to prove this was like two weeks ago, go ahead, I stopped Grace and Fabs right there. <laughs> they look so happy. And little do they know that right over their shoulder, go ahead and show that. Look at her. Look at that. They were clueless. This is where it gets crazy, though, is that um, this morning, we were gathering, people who helped on church for this morning, we always gather in this room over there to talk and plan. And someone came up with this idea of how funny would it be if someone dressed put their picture on there. They's like, Mark, how funny it be if Mark had a wig and they, we took his picture and we put it on the wall to see if anyone recognized. Like, they had to walk through that wall. They still didn't recognize it. They still didn't see it. That was this morning. Overlooked indeed. Overlooked indeed. Guys, I can't tell you how much effort that took uh, from me getting a tripod to dressing and drag to taking the picture to getting it printed off at CVS and having that awkward exchange to going on Amazon, measuring the frame, buying the frame, putting it there, swapping it out every... It's so ridiculous, and I can't tell you how excited I've been to share that with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have to be here. You chose to be here, all right? All right, so let's talk about water. What were some of your favorite water spots, your favorite uh, particular places? What's that? Barton Springs, of course, the soul of Austin. What else? Puget Sound, Northwesterner over there. Have it from the side. Favorite spots of water? Someone else's pool, very nice. It's like someone else's boat, yeah? Adriatic Sea. Of course, yeah. What's that? Ladybird Lake. Devil's River is for me. I have some of my best memories of my life in the Devil's River. Beautiful place. It's amazing how some of our most favorite spots include water, about being with water, how we long to uh, vacation and rest with water, how truly Barton Springs is such a respite, a refuge for many in our city, how we long for water. But the problem is also that water has this other capacity. It, ha it can wreak havoc on our life. Like water is something beautiful and to be cherished, but also can do a lot of damage. Like what can water do to us? Flood? Anyone experienced like a leak in their wall? and subsequent mold in their wall, awful. Water can also fall on a freezing branch, freeze again, and snap the branch. I'm not sure if you have experienced that before. I mean, water is like incredibly, it's a gift of life, but also can, we can have profound problems with water. Has anyone had a near drowning experience with water? I know I did. Like it, absolutely horrifying. It's a part of life, but it also could be incredibly deadly. As I studied the character who we're going to be talking about today, Mary, when I studied her life and I looked at her stories, I saw this thread of water through many of her stories. And I thought it was quite profound, this presence of water. 
And so today we're going to look at a couple different scenes of Miriam's life and this experience with water. So a little bit background of Miriam's story. Genesis ends with this. Joseph, in his technicolor dream coat, finds his way through the ups and downs of being sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up going to Egypt. He ends up um, interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. And, he, and through this process of ups and downs, he ended up finding his way into the palace of Pharaoh. He's like the number two person in charge of all of Egypt. And through, through his work, through his faithfulness, that he saved the lives of many, including the people in Egypt. And so his family settled there. And we pick up in the next book, the beginning of book of Exodus, begins hundreds of years later. And Joseph's one family has become now the Hebrew people. Numerous, large. But the problem is that the Pharaoh who is now in charge has zero connection to Joseph and his family's story, the legacy that he had built. And so instead of seeing, uh, seeing the story, remembering this faithfulness of this community, now the Pharaoh sees this population of outsiders increasing more and more. And so Exodus chapter 1 says this. The Pharaoh says, look, he said, at the, about, said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, will join our enemies and fight against us and leave, leave uh, us and leave the country. What we can see in this little passage, we can see a couple different things. First, we see the very same terminology that God used when he spoke to Abraham and gave him the, prop, uh, the promise that he would want uh, one day father a nation to numerous account. We find that very promise uh, lived out here in Pharaoh's words, how this community now has grown so widely. And what we also see here is, too, we see something that happens in our own culture, when we divide our community upon uh, racial or ethnic lines, the community of historic power and privilege will typically do whatever it takes to retain that position from outsiders. outsiders. And the fear of losing position gave way to making this other community the other, not human, but something to be dominated and used. Driven by fear, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they begin to exploit the Hebrew people and oppression and slavery become the norm. But oppression of enslaved people wasn't enough because they continued to grow in number, and so things got even more bleak. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Notice this not just a word to the Hebrew people, but all Egyptians have now been commissioned Anytime they see a young baby boy that's from the Hebrew people, he's to be thrown into the Nile. It's under this dark moment that we find the story of Exodus, the story of Moses, and the story of Miriam. As a side, have, have you guys ever noticed the similarities between the story of Moses' birth and Jesus' birth? How these kings or pharaohs just drunk with power and insecurity, which is a really, really bad combo, both call for this genocide so that they can retain their position. Both of these stories are incredibly bleak and dark. Yet, what we find here in both these stories is this is when God shows up. So for any, anyone who might be saying, I'm in a dark moment, a dark chapter of my life, I just want you to know that in the darkest moments, oftentimes are the beginnings of God's story of redemption and restoration and salvation, that there is hope 
in those dark places because what we find in the text, God often shows up there. We heard this in Exodus 2 in our scripture reading earlier. It's so interesting to me that we find this story about Moses and his mother, the choice that they make. And it's, for me, I remember learning this story in Sunday school, in VBS, cute cartoons of like a baby in a cozy little basket taking this little joy ride in the Nile, you know. Even when I Google Moses' basket, do you know what I found? I found this. Look, it's like... There's like a whole trend about you can buy a Moses basket for your baby, you know? And what's so frustrating and confusing is, next slide, please, is um, they're not cheap, like 169 but I, I get really upset about this. Basket not included. Like, <laughs> so you're just getting this thing. It's just bizarre to me how we've turned this story into something cozy and cute. Uh, but for me, when I look at the story, This is an absolute nightmare, an absolute nightmare, an unbearable moment of suspense, a delicate situation where the worst possible thing could happen. Uh, Rochelle Oliver, how old is your son? Two months. Okay. So we're about a month away. How would you feel about throwing your baby in a basket and putting him in the the Nile River? You feel good about that? Okay. We got a thumbs up. All right, cool. (laughs) This is a delicate situation, though. Moses is born, and his mother hides him for three months. All along the way, every gurgle, every cry, every time someone walks by, they might hear this child. Every time the family needs to go and get something, do they leave the baby at home by by himself? This family has to be living in fear for three months, but they knew there would be a day where they couldn't hide him anymore. And on this day, they have to release their son. Whether a well-devised plan or not, this is what they did. The mother put her three-month-old baby who couldn't even hold up his head into this basket, this papyrus basket. One turn of his body or one large wave, and that child would just disappear in the Nile. It's interesting for me, the terminology that they use for this word basket is also could be translated ark, similar to the story of Noah, something that held the beginnings of new life was also in this bat- backdrop of a lot of death. So this mother places her three-month-old in the river that he was supposed to drown in, and among the reeds in this powerful Nile, we find the mother leaves. She leaves the scene at this point, But someone else stayed there with this child, with this moment, watching over this baby. In verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Though it doesn't say it explicitly, most people believe that this is Miriam, Moses' older sister. Some scholars put Miriam at the age of 12 years old. The fate of this baby was, was being given over to this young girl. But what we see about Miriam in this story, we find through the rest of her life, the rest of her story, is that time and time again she displays this particular character, that she is a person of great wisdom and courage. Wisdom and courage. I have a couple of prayers or blessings I try to say over kids when I'm like on my A-game as a dad and not just wanting to throw my kids in their bed and run downstairs. But sometimes on a, when I'm on a good day or even during a baby dedication and infant baptism, I'll say these same words. I'll give a blessing that God may fill them 
with wisdom, and with courage. I think those are the two things that we need most in this world right now. Wisdom to know what is good, beautiful, and true, and courage to live that out against all costs. I see this in Miriam over and over again, especially in this moment right here that she responds with courage and wisdom. This princess, Pharaoh's daughter, goes down to the river and sees this baby and is compelled with compassion. Miriam sees the compassionate response, and so she responds quickly, immediately. She responds wisely. And this is what she says. When his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, uh, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, the, the princess said. So the girl went away and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and then the child grew older. She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Mo- Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. The irony of all ironies, this mother who had to place her baby in this basket and leave the scene is now called back, and the very family that called for his death is now saying, will you care for this child? Will you take this child into your home? I will ensure his protection. And guys, she got paid. I'm sorry, but after this week, I think that many of us with young kids should get paid, like, overtime. I'm not sure about y'all, but our kids had a lot of screen time, a whole lot of screen time. It was a rough week. But this river, that which was meant to be an instrument of death, the end of the story was actually bringing about new life. This water that could be so deadly was bringing about new life again, a new chapter. This is the great reversal This is the work of God, but it it was in no small account also due to the wisdom and the courage of this young girl, Miriam. I wonder what that river would mean to Miriam as she grew up, what that would mean to Moses as they would see the Nile and they remember this delicate moment where God's provision was unforeseen, but it showed up. I wonder what that would mean to Miriam and to Moses. And guys, I don't think this was like an act of faith that they did. I don't think that, I think this was just an act of desperation that this family had, and God responded. God gave a surprising provision. But there was another moment that Miriam had with water. Uh, If we fast forward now 40 years later, Moses is now a grown man. He was in the desert for 40 years. God calls him to go uh, to deliver the people from Egypt. And so Pharaoh then has this encounter with Moses again and again. And Pharaoh releases the Hebrew people, the entire nation, to begin to walk in freedom. This was after a lot of plagues that took place. Interestingly, one of the plagues was the Nile turning into blood, which again, think about that for a second. But so Pharaoh releases the Hebrew people to go walk in freedom. But then they have a problem. The Hebrew people have a problem. It's something called the Red Sea. It's kind of like blocking their path. And They set up camp along that sea, but then Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his army and chariots to go get his valuable slaves. In this moment, the Red Sea now is holding them in, like pinning them in. They have no place to run. The sea is now an instrument of imprisonment and death. But then Moses hears from God and then declares, 
to the community. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then Moses raised his staff. God caused the sea to part, providing a way where there was no way. And then the people crossed over. Lower, Moses lowered his staff and the water swept over the army that was chasing after them. And then this takes place, Exodus 15. When, Moses's, I'm sorry, when Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both the horse and the driver he had hurled into the sea. Guys, Miriam broke out into song. She led the women in celebration and singing and dancing. And the sea that was seen as a graveyard for this nation was actually their very deliverance, how God was showing up and fighting for them. And again, once again, the waters weren't the place of death, but actually deliverance. Though the enslavers were going to use it for control and domination, God had a redemptive power waiting to show up. This moment of the Red Sea would be something that this community would retell over and over again. Even one day on every year for Easter, we would be looking at this moment over and over again. And they would always, this community would always remember Miriam's leading of them in worship. It's powerful when things have this transformation that we're finding what God's doing with this water. When the things that were once seen as pain or captivity are transformed into our very deliverance. When things have this reversal, this transformation through God's grace and power. I wonder if you have those places in your own life where you could look back and where once were seen as bleak and dark. And now you see the seeds of God's redemption taking root. It makes me think of a video there is this gathering called the Wild Goose Festival that takes place in North Carolina. Has anyone been there? Anyone? Okay, cool. All right. There's a gathering there in North Carolina. This is festival. It's this kind of gathering for folks who are Christian but have lar- largely found themselves not fitting into that tribe anymore. And they, many of them felt kicked out or they just don't affiliate or they don't sense, uh, they don't sense alignment anymore. And so they now find themselves in the outskirts of Christianity Yet they have this festival, and they all gather there together. So it's full of people who are doubters, gay folks, uh, jaded people, spiritually curious but not religious. They gather at this festival, and it's like this collection of Christian misfits. And it's kind of this beautiful thing. At this gathering, they have speakers and musicians come, and at night, as it gets really late, they have something called beer and hymns. They gather underneath this big tent, I guess... They drink beer, and they sing hymns. One year, someone unique showed up, none other than Amy Grant. Now, I don't know if you grew up in a Christian home in the 80s, but Amy Grant was kind of a big deal. She was kind of like the, like, she was like the darling of the Christian music scene, all until she wrote a song that ruined everything. Anyone can say that song? Baby, baby. Yeah. 
It wasn't racy or scandalous, but it got picked up by the secular radio stations. And that's enough for a Christian. You know, the K-Love, you're out. If, if they start liking you, we can't like you. It's kind of like the unspoken rule. And so Amy Grant was a big deal until she wasn't. But she had this one song that was really, really famous. And it's funny that uh, when she walked into this gathering of all these, like, hipster, kind of jaded Christian folk, they started chanting for her to sing a song called El Shaddai, almost like a joke. Uh, And then this took place. Let's watch this video. just walked into the cool kids' table. And she, with like vulnerability and like this purity, just sang this song that perhaps was played in the settings of their own childhood that maybe for some of them is intertwined with a lot of pain, places that they don't want to return to. And yet, this faithfulness of this woman, just to show up, maybe not on her turf, and just declare El Shaddai, Uh, This is a translation for El Shaddai is the God who is more than enough. And for this community who maybe left their paths behind, these words perhaps took on a different meaning. That there's a one who sees, sees the one who's on their knees, who's all alone, one who sees captives, and a God who wants to bring deliverance, set all the children free. And just... The freedom that they are now experiencing is just different than what they expected from their childhood. El Shaddai, the one who's more than enough. I wonder if God would maybe want to take us by the hand and have us return to some of the old, our own landmarks and our own past. Not for us to return to pain and be re-traumatized by that, but for us to go back to those places and just maybe have eyes to see how the redemptive work, the delivering work, of God was even at place there. And the same God who is more than enough there is still at work saving us today. So back to that passage earlier. 
did we notice what the Bible, God's word, said about Miriam, what called Miriam? Miriam the prophet. I like that translation prophet. Usually some Bibles call her the prophetess. I don't like that category because it's like, well, we have male prophets and female prophets, and there's like a delineation just because, just like in the same way, like Fabs is not a female preacher, you know, like she's just preached. And so in the same way, Miriam is a prophet, a person gifted by God to speak God's truth to the community. Here, Miriam is leading the women in worship, but in what we find in the rest of her story is that Miriam was not just a leader for the women, but for the entire Jewish community. I found this in Micah 6, 4. You know, like some people quote Micah 6, 8. Uh, this happens just four verses here before, before that. This is what Micah 6, 4 says about how God chose to lead God's people. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. God used Miriam to lead the people, the whole nation, into deliverance, into freedom. It was always God's plan. Even in a misogynistic culture where women were commonly treated like property, God spoke through and led through men and women side by side. It was always God's plan. Miriam would have a legacy leading with wisdom and courage, letting the people know that there is a redeemer that is for you. God is a sustainer. Miriam could say, I have seen how God took that which was meant for harm, meant to destroy, meant to bring captivity, to bring life again, to deliverance, freedom. This is what Miriam knew firsthand, that the same waters of the Nile that she saw as a young girl, the waters of the Red Sea that she saw in Exodus, and every well along the way throughout the desert that God loves to provide for God's people over and over again. God is a chain breaker. God is a deliverer. This was Miriam's life, her legacy. It's no surprise that Miriam's name literally means rebellion. Not a typical name that we find feminine, right? Rebellion, that Miriam would see firsthand and would help lead through her own life this gracious rebellion from all the systems of captivity and systems of emptiness that this world has, all the enslavers that this world might bring, that people like Miriam, God would use to bring about deliverance. And this deliverance was not just away from the unjust, but this rebellion was also towards God, towards God's kingdom, God's provision, over to God's rule. We need men and women to continue to live with that kind of courage and wisdom to lead this gracious gentle rebellion against all the subtle ways in which people are still used, people are still captive, for the systems that dehumanize the vulnerable so that we could see that we can find home in God. We can discover a new kingdom for all God's children. The final moment we see of Miriam's life was Numbers 20, verse 1. There's a deeper story in the Jewish tradition that was taught in this moment. This is a very simple verse, and we're, we're about to close here. But Numbers 20, verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. And prof something profound takes place in the very next verse. Verse 2. 
Now there is no water for the community. In the Midrash, in the, in the conversations that Jewish people have around the text, what they commonly see, there's not, it's not by coincidence that this next verse, the lack of water, follows Miriam's death. Because the gift that Miriam has, the symbol of her life, is that of water, is that of a well. And in the absence of this matriarch, for God's people, they found themselves thirsty. Miriam's life work was similar to water. She displayed the power and the might of God at work, and when Miriam died, that well had run dry. They lost the prophet who reminded the people of God that they had a redeemer, a restorer, one who could make a way where it looks like there's no way. They missed someone who could lead God's people through all the desert places in this rebellious hope that there is a kingdom for us, in front of us. This is the the legacy of Miriam. And I wonder, I wonder what Miriam would say if she was here with us today. My guess is that she might grab a, a tambourine. I don't know if we have one. But she might grab a tambourine. Be she ready to lead us in worship so that we could be reminded the same God who was with her, the same God who was a, a way maker and a chain breaker, he is at, he's here, he's with you, and he can do it again. If only we could live with that kind of wisdom and that kind of courage. Maybe we too could be a part of this gracious rebellion that God wants to do here today. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.